0: Welcome to Chatting with Channing, the podcast for Channing School that lets you, the listener, find out more by hearing from people throughout the school community. Each episode you'll hear real stories from staff, from pupils, from parents, and the school's alumni to give you a true reflection of life on Highgate Hill. In this episode, we're speaking to Catherine Budget Meakin. She left the school back in 1964, so life back then will have been in some ways very different to life in 2022 and 2023. We find out some of her memories of school life, what that's like when these memories are mixed with life today in school, and how the school prepared her for life after Channing, something that's so important today. So for all that, and for much more, come with me now, as Arabella speaks to Catherine Budget-Meekin.
1: Well, hello. I'm joined today by Catherine Budget-Meekin, who has just released a book. But also, I just want to hear a little bit more about your life when you were at Channing. So delving back into your day, when were you at Channing? And perhaps have you got a favourite
2: memory? I came here when I was 11 in 1957, and I left in 1964 after A-level. So I had seven years here. I loved being at school. I was very happy here. I don't think it did as well as I would have liked academically I think I wasn't pushed enough and I think I was a lazy child and easily distracted so it's a six of one and half a dozen the other but I was very happy here I loved the sport I loved my my friends are very important to me Mm -hmm. and I enjoyed seeing a musical and choir and all those things very different school.
1: And I was about to ask actually because I think it would be interesting to find why did your parents send you to Channing? What was it had prompted them?
2: Well, I didn't come till, till secondary school. I'd been to a local school in Highgate, Northern Heights, and then I went to Henrietta Barnett. And though I passed my 11 plus, I think they decided that it would be good for me to be able to walk distance because I, I grew up in Highgate, came here when I was two.
1: Wow, gosh. I mean, it's amazing as you think about that and as you say about how different the school is now. So when you came back recently, I think you mentioned for the AGM, what does it feel like when you walk around Channing now? What type of, how are your memories mixed with your
2: experiences? Well, I've I've seen it in transition for a very long time, because I was a governor for 23 years. Okay. So I came back as a governor in 1990 till 2013 with Isabel Raphael, who had taught me. She took me through O and A level Latin here, uh, and then went off and did other things, and then came back as head. And she invited me to be a governor, and I felt suddenly really rather grown up at last. And so I've seen the transition over the years and I've had a lot to do with the school and I've been involved with the CBM award, which I set up in the school in 2000, which is an environmental prize and is about to be uh, reworked and revived, um, I hope, this coming academic year.
1: Actually, for those people listening who probably don't know much about the CBM, but also maybe about your interest as well, why was it? something that you thought was important. And maybe you want to tell us a little bit more about what it was when it first started.
2: Well, I've been an environmentalist since, I suppose, when I read Silent Spring when I was still at school. So that's a very long time ago. But specifically since 1980, when my husband and I, we were living in Balham and we put a solar panel on our roof in 1980. So I've been aware of the threat of runaway climate change for a very long time, very involved with it, my husband even more so passionately, and I've been involved in various ways. I worked for um, Intermediate Technology Development Group, which is a third world charity now called the Global South, for 15 years, and that had an environmental aspect as well. Um, But I've been increasingly concerned about the climate emergency, as I think we should now call it. It is absolutely terrifying. And I was listening to a, a Guardian journalist talking about the COP meeting, which is still going on, and how absolutely disastrous it is because the rich countries are simply doing very, very little to reverse the terrible trend. My generation will be long gone But future generations, the children who are at Channing, their grandchildren, are going to face a world which is almost intolerable. And that is immoral that we've not done anything about it.
1: And so for you, obviously, and it's to be interesting to find out, like, what was the sort of first thing that kind of took you into that? But as you say... Speaking to the young people at Channing today, the girls, what is your message for them that you're really trying to sort of get them fired up about? I mean, obviously, you've mentioned lots of things,
2: but it'd be lovely to hear a little bit about that. I do think that they need to work on their parents. I mean, the children at Channing uh, come from well-heeled households and their consumption patterns are almost certainly completely unsustainable. The way that they have their holidays, the cars that they drive, the way that they consume. And I think actually that is the key, that our economic system encourages us to have more and more and more. And actually what we ought to be having is less and less and less of everything.
1: And how does the CBM Prize then actually help deliver that message or prepare them
2: it's now only in year seven. Um, it's going through some transition at the moment. Uh, but what, when I set it up in 2000, that was when Elizabeth Rodici was here, I was very keen that the, the girls worked with each other in teams, so it wasn't a, a single thing, it was a team thing, and that they had to present their findings in some way. So it wasn't just writing essays, it was working together and then presenting. And the topics that have been taken over, you know, over the years, things like sustainable transport, food, um, all sorts of things. You can imagine the sort of range of things that kids can get their, their teeth into buildings, the kind of buildings that we live in, you know, technologies, solar panels, and all the rest of it.
1: And actually, an incredible opportunity, isn't it? Because, as we say, education is the fundamental thing as we want to prepare young people for tomorrow's future and getting them to actually be engaged, but also not impose it, but getting them to ask
2: questions. So when you were at school, what what did you do after you left Channing? Well, I left with rather indifferent A-levels and not a clue about what I wanted to do. Wasn't even sure that I wanted to go to university. And I went off to Paris um, for a few months, and then in the beginning of when I was still, I was 18 and a half, I went as a volunteer to what was then called an approved school up in Yorkshire, run by the Salvation Army. And this was for girls who had gotten in trouble with the police and were, in a sense, in a junior prison, if you like. And they were 15 to 18 and I was 18. So we were really the same sort of age. And their life experiences and mine were like on different planets. And it woke me up to the reality of how lucky I had been. It changed me radically. And everything else that I've done since then is informed by that experience in 1965. So I came back and pulled myself together and thought I've got to get a university education and change the world. I'm going to make everything better. Of course, I haven't done a thing, but I have continued to try. Yeah,
1: OK. Well, I, you know, I don't don't say that, Catherine, because, you know, I know you've done a huge amount. But I think that's an incredible, isn't it? Because so often huge events in our life are triggered, aren't they, by something small that we didn't realise to step into to actually go and work in that school what was the little step that made
2: you go to that school was someone suggested it or I went to a meeting in on Highgate Hill and I can still picture the the sofa where I was sitting and somebody came from community service volunteers and talked about it and it was like a light bulb that's what I'm going to do so I applied to them I was accepted then I was interviewed by the because it was run by the Salvation Army so an interview by the Salvation Army and I knew nothing about them so that was another eye-opener and uh, off I went that march um up to yorkshire and uh, i mean i want, I had some difficult times because I hadn't a clue how to deal with these girls and they uh, I remember sitting the first morning at breakfast with two girl- two Geordie girls, and I couldn't understand a word they were saying, and I kept saying sorry sorry could you could you repeat that and I just didn't. I kept, my ear was completely not tuned in. Um, Anyway, I learned, I got better at it. I made mistakes and I got better. And when I left, I absolutely, it was like a love affair. I really didn't want to leave. I just had a wonderful time. The staff were wonderful. They were very tolerant of me and very welcoming of me. And. Some of the girls. I wrote it all up. I'm such a writer. Oh, okay. I wrote it. I've got the notes about all the girls. I came across the notebook recently. And that's extraordinary that I've got it all recorded.
1: Gosh, what a, what a memory as well. And probably like sort of like a time capsule of a part yeah. of your life. I mean, I know you mentioned your maybe indifferent academic results, but obviously there's a huge amount that the Salvation Army and their interview saw in you as a person. How do you think your time at Channing actually prepared you for a probably going to Yorkshire, but maybe some of the things that you've done since?
2: Before we go on to Channing, I think I was very lucky with my parents. I'm an only child and my parents um, were separated by the war, so they didn't get married till after the war. So they were grown up, they were older parents than many, and I they adored each other and they adored me. And to have that kind of start in life gives you a very, very sound footing. And I think then Channing was the right school for me. I mean, Isabel Raphael was, Isabel Lawson, as they, she then was, was a wonderful teacher. The English teaching was outstanding. I can write, and I still know I was well taught. And I think the French was very well taught here as well. It's just that I was lazy. <laughs>
1: Well, I must say, in the fact that your relationship with your Latin teacher, the fact that she actually invited you to come back and be a governor shows that, yes, aside from your laziness, that there was obviously a huge richness there in that relationship as well. Um, so, okay, so we come to the time after you left um, the school up in Yorkshire and then, and you were like, I want to go and change the world. So, where did that take you next?
2: Well, because my A levels weren't very good, I went to Davis Lang and Dick. Uh, and did a, f- a fourth A level. And I did my maths O level for the first time, Ooh, okay. because at the end of what was then called lower five, which I think is year nine, I was told to not to do it because they knew I'd fail. And, and I would have failed. We had three girls in our form who were budding a, a math- mathematicians. And they always understood, first of all, and I never did. And I would have failed it and I would have probably failed it two or three times. But so I didn't do it and I had to do it to go to university. And of course, I passed first time. In fact, I have two maths so levels on different boards.
1: Oh, I love that. Don't just do it once, do it twice. Just prove that you're brilliant. I mean, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because so many things at school, and I'm sure when you're speaking as well and you come back to the school... We have things spoken over us that we think are true. And suddenly we realise that actually we, we cap ourselves. So there's obviously other fulfilling things that you've gone off and done. What do you find most challenging about the work that you have, you know, maybe whether environmentalism
2: or other things that you've taken part in? After university, I worked at Unilever for two years, which was very much not my thing, but did give me skills and appreciation of being professional. Right, okay. and writing and all those sorts of things. And then in I was there for two years. And while I was there, I started to save up money to do my trans-African trip, which is now immortalized in the book. And so I set off in, in September 1971. And 16 weeks later, I arrived in Johannesburg And then, uh, having got there, I then got a job at the University of the Witwatersrand and taught first year, well, tutored first year sociology students, which was another wonderful experience. I mean, South Africa was a horrible place, but to be involved at WITS was really wonderful. And some people here will remember Mr. Crawford, who taught art, was the head of art, and his wife... Elaine, her family was very, very good friends of mine in South Africa. And Elaine helped me launch the book. Their two daughters were Channing. So there are all sorts of circles. And so after my African trip, 1973, I went to Oxford to do my PGCE and I then started to teach. And I taught in Brixton, Tooting and Lewisham, all comprehensive schools. And all the least able, because this is how I wanted to t- change the world. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, again, what were you teaching in those schools? Well, it wasn't Kevin, what,
2: or... it was who. It was the least able. So the, the first school, they had 10 streams and I was teaching the bottom three streams exclusively. And during the first year, I, my Oxford course had not prepared me at all for teaching in Brixton. And I used to be physically sick quite often before going into school because I was not prepared. So over the Christmas holidays, I gave myself a talking to. Either you get better at this or you go and do something else. And of course I got better at it. And I was there for, in that school for four years and was acting head of the department um, in the last bit of that. And so then I went on to be head of department in another school in Tooting. And then I got married during that time. And then had a failed pregnancy and thought that wasn't a very good idea to be trying to run a department in a difficult school. And so I went part-time to a school in Lewisham where I was for nine years. But increasingly, I had another failed pregnancy. I just thought, I can't go on doing this teaching for the rest of my professional career. And so I started as a -a one-day-a-week volunteer for the charity Intermediate Technology, which is now called Practical Action, and that was the best thing that I've ever done in my life. It was just wonderful. Clever, bright, sparky, radical, angry people. And I then set up their education program because I had the teaching background. For UK schools and I am inordinately proud of what we did and how it then developed. It went from strength to strength, that program.
1: And Johnna, tell us a little bit about what was the aim of the organization, what you actually were trying to
2: achieve. It was founded by E.F. Schumacher, who wrote a very famous book called Small is Beautiful. And the motto of the organization was find out what people are doing and help them to do it better. So it was looking at the skills and um, culture of Poor communities in Kenya and um, Sri Lanka and Bangladesh and Peru. So I mean, that's just a quick spread. And so it was working with existing skills and improving their technology in order to enable people to earn a living. So it was entrepreneurial in a way. But it was also improving their technologies with them, not for them, but with them.
1: Amazing opportunity. And I think also very foresighted as well, because long term development action at the time was often, as you say, was kind of that top down sent over from other countries rather than working with communities themselves. So obviously your experience when you went overland from London, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the inspiration about why you've written this book now, but Travelling through, I suppose, you probably experienced and you saw a huge amount of things which would have also fed your thinking and your ideas as well.
2: Yes, I did one of my courses at the university was anthropology. And I think that gave me a, an instinctive interest in the peoples through which those countries we've travelled through. And I honestly, lots of the people on my truck were wanting to just to visit animals in East Africa. I'm very pleased to have been to a game park or two, but actually I was much more interested in the clothes people were wearing, the houses they were living in, their reaction to us. All of that sociological, anthropological stuff was really what informed my interest in the whole trip.
1: Wow. I mean, have you got any particular events or different places that you can remember that sort of stand out in your memory? I don't want people not to read the book they't find
2: out? So many. I mean, the the move from northern, I mean, you asked me before why I'd written it now. i I didn't write it now. I wrote it then. it was it was my diary. And I wrote my diary uh, as letters to my parents and I posted them off chapter by chapter, keeping a carbon copy in case any of the chapters went missing. So the, the book is my it's not now, it's then. And when I got home a year later, I was away exactly a year to the day. When I got home, my mother handed me the typescript. She'd typed the whole thing up. Oh, amazing. How gorgeous. And if she hadn't done that, I don't think you would ever have seen the light of day. And so I scanned it into a computer maybe 30 years ago. I mean, a really long time ago. And it's only I suddenly realized this is 50 years ago now. That is what is interesting because you couldn't do it now. You could not go through the southern Sahara or northern Nigeria or Chad Or Cameroon or Central African Republic or Congo, all those places would be completely dangerous now, and it wasn't for us. And I feel incredibly privileged to have done it then with a bunch. I mean, we were innocents, and I say this in my in my introduction. I now realize how naive we were. And in a way, ignorant. It wasn't just innocent, we were ignorant. You know, somebody said to me last night, I've just been flicking through your book and it's all about eating and washing.
1: What was it like encountering your younger self, you know, 50-year-old self, as you began to read through the pages again?
2: I am me. I've just sent a copy to my friend Sonia, who was was chatting with me, and she said, I can hear your voice all the way through. And I'm the same person. I'm absolutely the same person. Oh, amazing.
1: Yeah. You've obviously mentioned how... Some of these countries are incredibly dangerous, like, as you mentioned, Congo, Chad, Southern Sahara. But if you given the chance today, would you do this journey again? No. Why not?
2: Well hey I'm not the right age <laughs> I definitely wouldn't want to be camping and doing all the grotty things we had to do no it was a, it was a journey for young people and we were all young people we were all I was 25 we were all about that age and I think it's not not a thing for older people to do yeah totally
1: and how might this trip perhaps have acted as a catalyst for your environmentalism?
2: I think it fed into what was already there. I mean, after all, I'd, my degree was sociology. I mean, I was very interested in that sort of world. And um, and as I say, I read Silent Spring when I was at Channing. So, I mean, it goes back really forever. Amazing. And
1: if you're when you're speaking to the girls today at Channing, you know, what- small change are you encouraging them to make to help protect the environment or to think more about their
2: place in the world? I think that's a really difficult one because I really want to be very challenging. I mean, people going on long, long haul trips from school. I don't think he's right. I don't think I mean, I think you can go to Europe and you can do it all by train. But people shouldn't be flying. I mean, I think there's an argument for people whose family is the other side of the world. And there are might be arguments for some conferences, but perhaps not even that much. We all know Zoom has changed our world. I just think that the thoughtless consumption of everything, energy, food, fuel, is just unsustainable. And it's tough stuff this is this means a change completely in lifestyle if the futures of these children's grandchildren is to be secured
1: well thank you because i think there's no point skirting around the issue is there and that that is what we are here to talk about and you know i know that channing is very passionate about preparing girls for the future and to take their place in society So, you know, as we come to close, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today.
2: I would be happy to talk to the Channing Association about this stuff if they ever wanted me, because actually it's the parents you need to get to. to Well, and
1: and of course, and it's it's, it's got to be all of us together, hasn't it? Yeah. So you mentioned that you are still in touch with some of your friends from Channing days. Do you still have a lot of friends that you kind of meet up with and talk about school days with?
2: Well, last year, I was the editor and illustrator of a book, which is in the school, about what has happened to us since we left Channing. So we have now, uh, we used to have occasional reunions. We now have them every year because we don't want to wait for another five years. More of us might be dropping off the Hey.
1: Well, very politely put indeed, you know, dropping off the peg. <laughs> if you can remember back to the days when you used to probably have your own neat peg in school and stuff like that. Just before I say goodbye, uh, Catherine, if you could go back in time, what advice would you give to your teenage self?
2: I would say have faith in yourself, uh, be strong, and don't be afraid. Okay, amazing. Well,
1: I wish you're the best. And thank you so much. And for those people who are going to read your book and find out and hear your voice as they read Overland from London to Johannesburg in 1971, it will be an incredible privilege. And particularly as we have this conversation going on at the moment and thinking about what we can do for the future. So
2: thank you. Okay. Bye.
0: So that was Catherine Budget-Meekin who left the school nearly 60 years ago. How incredible to hear her stories. Catherine, I know you'll be listening. So thank you for spending the time and sharing all of this with us today.